continuing our series looking at the Gospel of Matthew. I know it's not Christmas time, but we're looking at some of the Christmas stories at the beginning of that Gospel. And um, I hope this morning that even though this story might be a little familiar to you, if you have grown up around the church or have um, celebrated Christmas in the past, you know of the three wise men that come and bring gifts to Jesus. We're going to look at that story And um, I hope that maybe we'll look at it with some fresh eyes today. Uh, Our oldest son, Theo, he is learning how to read. And it's really fun to see him make connections with letters and words and string words together and make a sentence. And we've been working with him on that. And uh, we've got this worksheet at home that's got sentences for him to practice that. And uh, as he's learning how to read... Uh, these worksheets, they will repeat the same word multiple times, um, whether it's in the same sentence or every sentence has the same word, and it's a new word that we're trying to get him to learn. And so they'll repeat it. You know, it'll be like like this: I saw a red leaf. I like the red leaf. The red leaf is big. Things like that. And even as adults, when we want to learn something new. Often, um, repetition helps us, whether it's learning an instrument or learning a new language or trying out a new recipe. Repetition is key. It helps us see what's important and helps us learn something new. As we read Matthew chapter 2, even though it's a familiar story, I think that Matthew wrote it in a way using repetition of a word for us to see what's important, for us to learn what he wants us to learn. And so we're going to read the passage, then we'll talk about that word, and then go through our sermon. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, 
gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us, it shows us how to respond to you. We pray now, Spirit, would you illumine our hearts to your grace and point us to your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Did you catch the repeated word? Matthew wants us to see that because Jesus is the king, we should worship him. Because Jesus is the king, we should worship him. And he's going to show us what it looks like to worship him. We've got three points this morning. You can follow along in the bulletin. Uh, We're going to see that we should worship him with an undivided heart, We should worship him with an impassioned heart, and we should worship him with a heart that is at rest. So we're going to look at an undivided heart, an impassioned heart, and a heart at rest. First, let's look at worshiping Jesus with an undivided heart. King Herod was known as Herod the Great, and he certainly was great, according to some. He was a great builder. He constructed the temple in Jerusalem, Um, not the second temple we looked at a couple weeks ago, but later in the life of Israel, King Herod established and built up the whole temple complex. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see ruins and the walls of King Herod's temple. He was a great builder. He, he helped rebuild the whole region of Samaria. Out in the wilderness of Judea, he established and built up this fortress at a place called Masada. It's still standing today. He was a great builder. Except he also built uh, temples to other pagan gods. He built sports complexes and bathhouses, and he brought in Greco-Roman culture into the region. He was great, according to some, but according to others, he wasn't so great. He was a great tyrant, actually. He wasn't really supposed to be king. He wasn't a true Israelite. He was appointed king by Rome, the occupying power. They took him and appointed him king. And so he served not the Jewish people, he served Rome. He would take taxes from the people and give them to Rome. He would defend Roman peace with the Roman army. He was a tyrant. And he loved it. He loved having that power. He loved having that power and the prestige. It it got to him. He wanted to hold on to it so Tightly, He feared that that power would be taken away. And in fact, uh, King Herod was so worried that someone would take his power from him, his throne, that he had his favorite wife and his two sons by her murdered because he heard that they were going to attempt a coup and take over. He was a tyrant. And later in chapter 2, we'll see 
he feared a little baby. And so he sent armies out to murder every child two years old and younger. This man was a tyrant. He held on to his power too tightly. He would not share the kingdom with anyone. And so when these wise men from the east come and say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? He was troubled. And not just worried, he was troubled. So much so that all of the people of Jerusalem were troubled because of him. He was terrified that someone would come and take his power away. He did not want to share his kingdom with anyone. And in a way, I think that we can look at King Herod and this this fear of his, and it demonstrates, I think, what takes place in each of our own hearts when we encounter King Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, maybe for the first time, when we hear the message of the gospel, maybe if we're searching scripture and we read about him and what he calls us to do, maybe in our morning devotional times, we read something from King Jesus and it challenges us. I think every time we encounter Jesus, we tremble and we're troubled because we want to hold on to power. We're not ready to give up the throne of our hearts. In other words, our hearts, when we encounter Jesus, are divided. We want to hold on to power, but Jesus says, no, I'm the king. Our hearts are divided. I love this illustration from Ray Ortland. I've used it before, and it's, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. He talks about our hearts being divided like this. Uh, he says, imagine that there is a boardroom, a boardroom, a company boardroom in every heart. There's a big table with leather chairs, coffee, bottled water. There's a whiteboard. There's a meeting going on. There's a committee sitting around the table. And around the table, the members of the committee of your heart, you've got the social self. You've got your private self your work self, your sexual self, your recreational self, and your religious self, and and there are others. And the committee is arguing and debating and voting, trying to direct your life. Constantly agitated, constantly upset, rarely can you come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. You are divided. We tell ourselves that this division is just the way it is because we're so busy, we have responsibilities, we have competing values, but the truth is our hearts are divided. We're unfocused, we're hesitant, we're not free to pursue one thing. And that person, this this heart, Ray Ortland says that there are two ways in which that person encounters Jesus. 
When we come to Jesus the King, we encounter him two different ways. One way that we can encounter Jesus is that we can invite him in to the committee. We can say, pull up a chair, join the discussion. We'll give him a vote too, and then he just becomes just one more complication, one more voice at the table. The other way that we can encounter Jesus is welcoming him into our lives and saying to him, my life is not working. Please come in and fire my committee. Every last one of them, even myself, I am giving it all over to you. Please run my life for me. To encounter Jesus is to accept Jesus not by just adding him into the mix, but it also means taking away whatever idol that our heart is holding on to and saying, Jesus, take over my life. Whatever power or control, whatever it is that you're holding on to and saying, Jesus, you can't take this from me, well, that's not worshiping Jesus. What in your life right now, what in your heart are you divided against Jesus over? What are you reading and learning from him? And when he says, hey, stop doing that, you say, oh, I don't know. When he says, you should be doing this instead, you say, I'm not sure, Jesus. I like it the way that we're doing it. I like how my life's going like this. Who are you to tell me what to do? No, Jesus, you're not the king. I've got control. Because Jesus is the king, we need to worship him with undivided hearts. Saying, Jesus, come in, take over my life. I give you control. Because Jesus is king, we are to worship him with undivided hearts. But we're also called to worship him with impassioned hearts. Herod is trembling. And so he calls together all of the high priests and the scribes. These are the religious leaders, the, the ones who are overseeing the temple and the sacrifices and, and worship. These are the, the folks who went to Bible school. They got their degrees in theology. They were raised in the church. They were models of the faith community. And he pulls them together and says, what's going on? I need answers. Tell me, what do the scriptures say about this? These guys are always the ones who win at Bible trivia because when Herod says, hey, tell me, what does the Bible say about this? They know the answer. They say, well, of course, the, the prophets have written that the Christ is to come from Bethlehem. They know the answer. They give the answer to Herod. They say the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. They were quick to give him the answer, but they were not quick to obey the truth of what they said. They didn't go out to Bethlehem and worship. They stayed in Jerusalem with King Herod. In other words, compared to these wise men, these Gentiles, these religious folks who should have known 
and should have believed and worshipped, they were apathetic. There was no movement in their heart. They didn't feel anything. Their heads knew all the right answers, but their hearts were not moved. There was a disconnect between what they knew to be true and what their lives did in response. Jonathan Edwards, a a pastor and theologian during the First Great Awakening in the U.S., he he talked about how uh, at the core of the person, at the core of everyone, uh, we can think of it uh, with two faculties. You have the cognitive side and the affective side. You You have what you know to be true, what you think about life, think about God, think about reality, but then you also have your heart, your emotions, your affections, what you are moved to from the core of your being. And he says that these two have to be in unison with one another, but too often we separate them. Like the scribes and the priests here, we know what's true but it often doesn't move us. We know what's true, but it often doesn't move us. We know the facts. We know the truth. We know what the Bible says. And yet sometimes, even though our Bibles are pointing us to the truth, our hearts are not quick to follow. Mere knowledge is not enough for us to worship Jesus. Mere knowledge did not move them to worship Jesus. Edward says that true religion in large part consists of holy affections. That it's not just knowing true things about God, but true religion consists at large parts with holy affections, feeling things and being moved in your heart for Jesus. Edwards makes this comparison, this distinction between knowledge and experience to that of tasting honey. He says this, there is a difference between having an opinion about God, that God is holy and gracious. There's a difference between that and then having a sense of his loveliness and his beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and then having a sense of its sweetness. You can hear all about the sweetness of honey, but until you taste it, you have no idea. He's saying you can have all of these facts and knowledge about who God is and of his grace and of his holiness and of his love. But until you have tasted and seen and experienced his loveliness, you haven't really encountered Jesus. To worship Jesus then with an impassioned heart is to align our affections with what we know to be true about God. To say, I know that this is true And I want to align my affections with that truth. I want to experience it myself. The problem is we can't force anyone to do that. You can't make someone feel that way. You can't make yourself really feel that way. 
We're in a stage of parenting right now where that is abundantly true. You cannot force anyone to obey. You can't force anyone to desire what you want them to desire. Like, you can't make kids desire to do good and loathe doing bad. You can't. But what we can do is create an environment in which we encourage that, in which we teach that, in which we demonstrate that, in in which we reward and discipline that over time, after repetition, that hopefully we would cultivate that desire in them. We can't magically create those desires and affections for Jesus, but we can create an environment in which those affections are cultivated. One author, speaking about cultivating these kinds of desires, he, he, he calls them habits. He, he talks about one time watching a Netflix documentary on food and being convicted by all the information about how wrong and bad and evil the food industry is in America and how how damaging it is to our bodies, he he was convinced, I need to change my diet. I've learned all these things, that that the way I'm living my life and eating is not good for me. I know I need to change. And so he set about creating a new diet, cultivating a new desire. And he said, at first, my heart warred against my mind. Like, I knew that I shouldn't be eating that, and I knew I should be eating this, and yet my heart didn't want it. I fought against it. But then he said, I created an environment for that habit to be cultivated. Like I got rid of certain foods in my house. We bought other kinds of foods. I asked my wife and my friends to hold me accountable. I, I, I learned how to prepare the food in a way that was delightful for me. And over time, I actually cultivated a desire for these new foods. I developed an appetite. Because Jesus is the king, we should worship him with an impassioned heart that has an appetite for him, that has desires for him, that has affections for him. We need to cultivate that. We need to create an environment in which we can draw near to him and commune with him in prayer, to open up his word and listen to him, to spend time with him through public and private worship, by gathering together with the saints and on our own, we have to develop these affections for Jesus. We can't worship him just with our minds. It's going to look different for each one of us. What might it look like for you to cultivate those affections? Like, I know for some of us, we have to get real practical, setting our alarms earlier in the day and forcing ourselves out of bed to commune with Jesus. Other times, it's going to be more, I don't know, going out into nature in the beauty of Northeast Ohio, one fall crisp afternoon and delighting in the beauty of God's creation. Sometimes for people, it's journaling what is on your heart and what the Lord is revealing to you, spending time in prayer. Others of you, it's listening to music and allowing your heart and your mind to get 
wrapped up in that? What is it for you that you can do to cultivate affections for Jesus? We can't just worship him with our mind. We have to worship him with an impassioned heart that longs for him. Finally, we also worship Jesus with a heart at rest. The Magi, these wise men, have come from the east, from from Persia, from modern-day Iraq. And um, they're called wise men and um, Magi. And it's a word word that really means, I don't know, an astronomer of their day. Uh, Someone who looked at the movements of stars that could then understand the world. It it was a mystical thing. That's why magi sounds like magician, because later in the development of that word, that mysticalness was sort of brought into it. These were people who looked to the stars to find answers. You know, today we look at the stars to find answers to, like, the history of the universe, where did life come from, you know, what is the chemical makeup of different planets. Back then, they would look up to the stars not to find scientific answers, but answers to the questions of life. They'd look up in the stars and ask, well, this placement of stars, what does it mean about what's happening in the world? You know, what powers are at play? What's the purpose and destiny of life? They were looking to the stars for answers. They were searching for purpose, for direction, and they believed that the stars had the answers to life. I mean, today, people look at zodiac signs and and star charts on the day you were born to map out life. It seems a little foreign, but I think we turn to so many things in search of these answers. We go to so many things longing for meaning. We go to relationships or or work or hobbies for purpose. And we go from thing to thing. We're restless until we find what we're looking for. We hop from one thing to another. We go from job to job searching for that one job that will make a difference in the world. We save and save and save thinking if my bank account only gets to this place, then I finally have made it and I've lived the kind of life that I've always wanted to live. We're restless until we find the answers to life. Have you ever felt restless? Maybe even physically. Literally. Have you ever found yourself laying in bed at night wanting to go to bed and yet you're restless? You lie awake at night fearful and anxious and worried. How am I going to pay the bills this month? Why is this relationship not resolved yet? Your mind is racing. Your heart is in turmoil. You're restless. There's a restlessness of our heart, our souls too. Always longing for something that's just out of reach that we're convinced is going to satisfy us. We see this all over our Culture. I love Apple products, like watches and headphones and computers. And t- I mean, I've got it all. And for the longest time, I've always loved watching 
their annual sort of showcases of their next thing. Two weeks ago, I watched it. They are so good at convincing us that what you have right now is not enough. That there is something new that we have for you, and if you have this, your life will be so much better. And it's every year. Every year. I'm tired. I am tired of feeling like I don't have enough. But I can't find rest because I still have Apple products. I think we all buy into it. We're all restless. We're always thinking there's something out there just beyond my reach that if I had that, well, I'd know everything. I'd know the truth. I'd know meaning. I'd know purpose. I'd be at rest. We can all relate to the Magi looking for answers, looking for reality, looking for truth, looking for rest in a restless world. They were looking up to the stars. And then one night, they found it. One night, they found what their hearts had been longing for. Or maybe we might say, he found them. They found what their hearts were looking for. The star appeared, and somehow they knew this is it. And the star led them to Judea, to Jerusalem, looking for the king of the Jews, the Messiah. They knew enough about Judaism to know that this king was not just a king, but a savior. This savior was not just for the Jews, but for the world. They needed to find him. So they came to Jerusalem, they came to Bethlehem, and the star stopped over the place where the child was, and we read that they rejoiced exceedingly with a great joy. I mean, Matthew is straining at words to express their heart's joy at finding the very thing that they were longing for. They found it. They found him. To worship Jesus with a heart at rest is to go to him and find in him satisfaction, the thing that we are looking for, our restlessness. We find rest in him. It's to go to him and say, if I have Jesus, I don't need anything else. If I have Jesus, nothing else matters. To worship him with a heart at rest is to join Charles Wesley in singing, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. The Magi found what their hearts were looking for. How do we know? Because they came to him with open arms, giving him treasure, giving him valuable gifts, giving him something of great value, saying, my hands are open. Take whatever you want from me. It's all yours. Nothing matters anymore in this world now that I have found you. I love this song. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love will abide forever through eternal years the same. Take the world. You can have it. Because I found 
Jesus. My heart has found the one that I've been longing for. What do we have in Jesus? We have forgiveness of sins. He has taken that from us. He has given us his righteousness. We have favor before our Heavenly Father who looks upon us with delight. We have a new life in him. Our old way of living is gone. We don't have to live that way anymore. We've been given a new birth. He's given us a purpose, a meaning, something great to live up for. He says, go into the nations and make disciples. I can't think of a more a bigger, more meaningful purpose to devote our lives to. He's welcomed us into his family, adopted by God, eternally secure. We will reign with Christ forever. We will inherit the kingdom of God. What do we have in Jesus? We have everything. Another song. Could we with the ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We have everything we need in Jesus. And most importantly, we have Jesus. And if we have him, nothing else matters. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need. Because Jesus is the king, we should worship him with a heart that is at rest. Turn to him when you're longing. Turn to him when you're restless. You will find rest in him. Let's pray.